Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and welcome to the show, writer director Al White. Hello. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. My absolute pleasure. Now we're going to do five great British horror films with you, but before we do that, we're going to talk about your film Starfish that you've written and directed. Are we not? Sure. Now I want to say subjectively great horror films because some people might disagree with my picks on these. So, well, if if we haven't got, I mean, we were talking earlier about something I was trying, I'm trying to develop, and subjectivity is the key to the human race's survival, as far as I'm concerned. It is. Particularly you, in the genre space, I feel well, we all need to be more more happy with each other's subjective opinions. Oh, with that, well, certainly TV series. My word, yeah. I've never known well, anything the like. Yeah, at the moment, like it's uh, everyone's just getting pushed further and further into corners. I feel, which is quite unhealthy. But, yeah. A friend of mine's got a theory about this because this is a kind of social media internet still being its infancy. Now, the phrase I've I've heard a lot of is post truth, but but he <laughs> thinks we're in a pre truth era, whereby there's so much information it's just chaos, and we haven't decided what the reliable sources are yet. So when we re- yeah. when we reach the post truth era in reality, that's when this will all die down. Yeah, I, I I would actually agree with them, but I think the problem is 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 a generational thing of the parents teaching the children things based on their own upbringing, you know, um, which isn't necessarily appropriate for the new kind of social age that we're in. However, by the time the kids have grown up to the point where they can teach their kids that, probably something else will have appeared that's changed everything yet again. You know, I feel we're always trying to catch up with the next sort of couple of generations and affecting them badly, <laughs> but. True, true, true. I was convinced the Rolling Stones were shit when I was 18. And, uh, <laughs> and I've been proven wrong. Um, <laughs> because it wasn't new. <laughs> but anyway, let's talk about Starfish first. Uh, do you want to give us a brief synopsis so people know what it is? Uh, not really. Uh, <laughs> do, you to read, do you want me to read to you what it says on IMDb? To I would love tr- to know what it says on IMDb. Yeah, let's on know. IMDb, it says it is a unique, intimate, and honest portrayal of a girl grieving for the loss of her best friend that just happens to take place on the day the world ends as we know it. Does that feel accurate? There you go. Yeah, it sounds sort of like a pitch, doesn't it? Yeah, let's go with that. Okay, then. So the audience now know <laughs> that. How the devil can they get to see Starfish? Um, it's on in English language territories. It's on VOD all over the place. Uh, if you go to starfishmixtape.com, there's a whole list of them there, which most of it's clickable. So iTunes, Amazon, Voodoo, lots of satellite stuff. So basically, the, the, at the moment, it's on the payvod sort of system at the minute. Yeah, we had like a limited theatrical in America, and they're still doing a few little bits of that and in Canada, but I don't think anything in England yet. Um, it's just gone straight to digital over there. Okay, okay, that's good to know. Um, now you wrote and directed it, so given given the sort of given I've watched it, I won't we won't we won't do spoilers. That's not fair on those that haven't seen it, given it's such a new film and the fact the internet blows up. Um, so we <laughs> want to avoid that, don't we, Al? I appreciate that. <laughs> but um, it is. It's. I, I can say it's a beautiful film without spoiling it. Um, I can say that it is a very thoughtful film. And I want, I'm just wondering, with the kind of mash of sort of, um, I guess, I guess traditional kind of what you would call traditional kind of indie drama tropes melded with um, very much a kind of sci-fi dystopia. Like, sort of, I guess like a, a near dystopia, isn't it? I suppose if it's on the brink of it, 
Um, where did you? How, where did you? Con- what was the kind of inspiration for you to conceive that idea as a writer? Uh, it came from a few places. I was actually, we were going to be shooting something else and I was developing some other scripts at the time. And then my best friend passed away and I was um, going for a lot of personal stuff. And I, I went to a, a snowy park, Colorado at the point at the time in January. I can't remember what this was now. Uh, for about two weeks, I locked myself away in a little cabin, and and I'd had this idea to do with. Um, do you remember? I think it was an English satellite uh, or an English. What it was? It was something had been sent out, and had scanned a meteorite in space, and had found this signal coming off of it. Mm. Um, and it fascinated me because I'm a big fan of genre, but I do like my favorite type of genre for movies, particularly science fiction, is very left field, so sort of Solaris or Donnie Darko and things like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. More the sci-fi that interests me. So I love this idea of, of um, you know, creatures from a different planet utilizing different technologies for the basis of, of their, you know, the foundations of their science, essentially. So I like this idea of sound. These meteorites been sent out into space and used uh, as kind of their version of explorers. They were kind of like bouncing the sounds off of different planets and seeing where they wanted to sort of go to. Um, so it kind of came from that, and then it was just very much... Uh, to be honest, when I wrote it, I wasn't expecting to make it into a film. It was very much just a cathartic es- exercise for me to do, mm. um, just necessity. So it, it took about a year longer before I could kind of push a bit of the hero's journey sort of template into it to make it mildly more digestible, because the first draft was just very emotionally reactionary and not palatable <laughs> for an audience at all. It's now definitely still, you know, it was. it's definitely a... I love it or hate it kind of thing. Like it, it'll still rub some people the wrong way because it is very um, obtuse. I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it has a it has a very dreamy quality to it that yeah. that means that while while there's a linear line of the narrative, you've got to pay attention. If you don't, you're going to lose it. I think. Yeah, it, I mean, I could confidently say it is all there. <laughs> no, no, I, I think it is, a, but I think. A lot of... Yeah, no, no, no. But no, I'm agreeing. Like, it is like we kind of had to embrace the idea of, well, we're making more of a visual, you know, it sounds very pretentious and I don't want to come off that way, but we wanted to make a a visual kind of poem, really. You know, we wanted to do something that made you feel how this character's feeling, which is obviously how I was feeling at the time. Mm. And that was more important to us than just sort of, you know, mapping out a simple A to B narrative. I don't know if you listen. It was a weird script to write like that. No, no, I can imagine. I can imagine because, because um, a bit like what we were saying before we started, it's the, it's the, uh, it's all very well to have the big idea. It's then to deliver it into a dramatic narrative structure at the same time mm. that communicates both the drama and maybe what you wanted to say. Um, but I was, I did, I mean, it, it resonates with something that um, Robert Cargill says. You know, the guy that wrote Sinister and Doctor Strange. Right. He has a podcast called Write Along, and on it he talked about this kind of sliding scale whereby, and I'm guessing he's talking from experience of doing something like Doctor Strange, whereby he says the more expensive a film gets, the more you have to explain it to every idiot in the world. And, oh, then, sure. and, and then as you slide down the scale and, and make a, a lower-budget indie film, you can, you can take leaps of faith with the audience and expect them to do a bit of work. Yeah, no, completely. And for me, like those are the movies. Don't get me wrong; I love blockbusters. Like I, I love Endgame and Infinity War and all that stuff. But for me, the films that really resonate with me are the ones you have to go away and discuss and think, talk about, and interpret in your own ways. You know, that's just more. I like, I like uh, films and art, which is trying to communicate something to you, but isn't necessarily telling you how to feel. Exactly. No, no, totally, totally agree. It's it's how I, I, I didn't know this until I w- attended enough genre festivals and I began to go I began to see that the, the, the genre by number films I just got bored within 10 minutes mm. and the, yeah and the ones that weren't necessarily fitting in a neat box I mean the great example this year at Fright Fest it closed with uh, Gaspar Noé's Climax oh boy yeah that's... You, you know you know what I mean it's kind of oh yeah that's the same the same festival that Puppet Master Littlest Reich played at you know so you can't get two ends of the spectrum. One I thought was an embarrassment to my intelligence. The other, I, I couldn't, I couldn't get my head round for a good few days, and and in fact spoiled cinema for about two weeks. Because is that Puppet, is that puppet Master you're talking about? No, no, Climax. Spoiled. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it spoiled it in a different way. But Climax, genuinely, I thought I can't repeat this experience again. This isn't going to happen. Uh, so I like that. So I'm, I'm buying that from you. No, uh, absolutely. Climax is a film that I. I 
objectively do not like, but I love that it exists. <laughs> and there's quite a few books like that. I'm like that with Mother. I'm very much like that with Mother. I, I don't, mm. I don't, I don't mind it being around, but it wasn't for me. But I love the fact that it generated such a hubbub and difference and strong difference of opinion. Yeah, it's important to have filmmakers who are doing that stuff. Like, I feel there's some Terrence Malick films as well, which I feel that way about. It's like, he's not landing it completely, but I'm just so happy that he's allowed to go and do these films. Like, that's so important, I think, to the landscape of film. And I think the same with Gasper for me as well. Uh, yeah. Fright Fest, by the way, is, is one of my absolute... Like, I've, I've been... I've unfortunately had to miss the last two years because of stuff to do with Starfish, but I've been going every year for about 15 years to Fright Fest. Good man, good man. Well, usually this is... I usually do... Uh, well, I sort of got to know... Kayla, who does the publicity for this film, uh, right. through through I do a series of like preview podcasts from Fright Fest on um, with all the filmmakers before they go before they come along, which is always fun. Um, but uh, segueing lovely into uh, art and stuff will be the music of your film, um, which I think is a real sort of cornerstone of the of your poetic experience you want us to have. Um, I found. The the one thing that I did do, which I couldn't help myself, was I was having to shazam as I was going on on a couple <laughs> of moments. Certainly, the one that really caught me when I was listening, because I'd heard it before, was um, was Porchlight Seafood Song. It really fucking grabbed me. Watching a film when a song just grabs me, um, it's it's such a lovely experience for me. Yeah, Seafood is one of my all-time favorite bands and it always broke my heart they never did bigger i think they arrived just at the wrong time they were kind of like post pixies mm. but just pre pre Idlewild, really getting you know, as big as they did and stuff like that and and yeah they were on fierce panda and it really they defined a huge part of my life and it's been really gratifying if nothing else when the film's playing at festivals or i'm following it on q a's or whatever is to have people come up and say oh what was that song we absolutely loved it and that makes me really happy because they've been defunct i believe for quite a while now um, yeah, so yeah, yeah. Just, just getting to share music that I love with people and seeing them appreciate it is great. But it was also uh, great gratifying for me to see like band, bands I've interviewed in the past uh, when I did when I was doing music journalism. So Granddaddy uh, and No Twist uh, were two bands that I've interviewed in the past, and I remember reviewing Jenna Forever. Um, oh wow! Yeah, um, never. Got, I mean, obviously, very familiar with Sparkle Horse. Uh, and Sigur Ross and 60 Days of Static, which I love just for their uh, the way they write the band name as much as the music. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and that is some song title that they of the song you've picked, isn't it? I mean... <laughs> yeah, it is. Which has different spellings depending which platform you're on. Well. Does it really? <laughs> yeah. So, some are Intool, some are Install, like it's weird. So, because so, 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 filmmakers listening will be jealous, will be green-eyed monster going, how do you get all that cool music into a sort of, you know, a reasonably low budget indie indie genre film. What, what, what was your, what's your magic trick there? Al? Well, I mean, so when I write a script, I actually put the songs in the script and then I send out the songs with the script um, because it's that important to me. And in mm -hmm. this film, obviously, it was baked, you know, into the actual narrative in mm -hmm. a weird way. Um, so it, it, I mean, it's a dangerous thing to do because you do become attached very early on, yeah. And if you don't get that licensing later, it's and. To be honest, the projects I'm working on now, we're working on getting the licensing before we shoot, um, so that we can, you know, be 100% how we're shooting things is going to fit with the music that's going to be over those scenes. Um, but this stuff, to be honest, like my taste, I didn't think anyone was going to like the, the music in this film because, other than Secret Ross, um, and I didn't realize how why, how big Y is actually in the US. People in the US really respond to that, which is mm. nice. Um, but most of my music tastes are pretty, you know, they're, they're quite old. Um, well, not old, old, but, you know, like they're not of now. And they are sort of bands definitely to the left field a little bit. Um, so I kind of didn't expect anyone. I, I expected it to be called out for being a generation left behind with the music choices for it. Um, so I do think it helps if you're going with bands who aren't necessarily playing anymore or, you know, they're sort of obviously i was very lucky to tour with sparkle horse with my of band course, just yeah. before he passed away um and sparkle horse has been my favorite band since i was about 17 um and the no twist have been my second favorite so those two were ones that i wanted to fight for to be honest the one that we're most worried about was just secret ross because it not to spoil anything but it closes out the film and it's a big musical kind of moment and mm. they're obviously the big one um that is still you know doing incredibly well um, but they were just very lovely, and I think you just have to have a right approach. Um, a good music supervisor who understands how important this stuff is to you and how you want to approach it. 
um, and then try and get the right kind of deal that benefits both sides. Um, I, I think it's always difficult when you're making a movie because some people from your team are going to want you to push, oh, let's pretend this is more expensive because it's going to get us access to this stuff. And then other sides are going to be, no, let's really show how little money we had because people might be sympathetic. And it's hard to know when to play, you know, what card, basically. Yeah, no, no, I've, I've had a music supervisor on the podcast talking about it, which is why I think it's a great achievement. I mean, you say you say they're not well known, but they 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 they're, they're not what they're not um, they're not obtuse that obtuse, as it were. You know, especially in this day and age. I think it's just. I mean, particularly in England, they're a little bit more known. But you come to America and you say sixty-five days of static, they're only going to know it now because the sort of the musical scores they're doing for video games right now. Okay, um, okay, okay. That's interesting. Like it is definitely, and the seafood obviously is sort of gone. The no twists, no one over here knows. Um, to be yeah. fair, yes, I, I was doing. I was writing about music, so that does put me in a different <laughs> yeah. quadrant. You might, you might be overly qualified. <laughs> <laughs> But but also that's it. It's interesting you write with the with the songs in mind and put them in the pages stuff because I'd only ever heard that from Bruno Fazanzi and uh, Helen Katat is it Katat Katay who do the you know do the um, the Belgian filmmakers who do the homage to uh, Jalo movies. Right, uh, right, they, right. They did a film called um, Strange Color of Your Body's Tears, which what they do is they write in bits of score from other Jalo movies like part of their homage. Oh, to the genre is they pick pieces of score and they write that again, they write it in. Um, so that's an interesting approach. I'm not sure I want to try it. Um, it's, it's hard enough <laughs> it's as it risky. is. It's, it's a risky thing. I wonder if Tarantino, because Tarantino obviously famously a lot of the times, you know, steals scores from everywhere, but he likes to only use pre-existing music mostly. Mm. Um, yeah, I wonder if he writes it in or not, because that totally seems like something he would do. Indeed, indeed. I remember the, I remember the story with the, that your next that came out a few years ago that was mm. that had the Lou Reed track for the trailer and then eventually it was uh, a completely different track that got released with the movie because they never got they never got it for the full release. Um, yeah, no, with, that's the pain. That's the painful thing. <laughs> really. It's quite funny though to see a trailer still knocking about with the old tune on because the internet doesn't die, does it? No, I know. Once it once it's out there, it's done, isn't it? It's kind of cemented. Right then, sir. So. That was a really rush through, so hopefully that wasn't too painful for you in terms of how much you may have <laughs> talked about Starfish already. <laughs> no, no one, no one ever wants to talk about the writing, so that was actually kind of fun. So good, that's good to know. Um, so, we're going to do five great British horror films with you. These are five personal to you, very much about the subjective. I'm not interested whatsoever in drawing a consensus as to what's the greatest British horror films, because... Quite frankly, why would we do that? I'm, I'm interested in learning about films people see and why they love them. And just to give people the rules who might not have heard this podcast before, it's really straightforward. Al's given me five. I've put them in reverse date order. We're going to go through them from oldest to newest. Um, so that means... Um, well, it doesn't mean anything yet. You'll find out as we go on. Um, <laughs> but uh, talking to the audience there, Al, not you. Um, and... <laughs> <laughs> and and every time we have five minutes on each film, so we don't exhaust our our time on the podcast uh, with one film and then find ourselves with sixty seconds to say in these four other films. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So uh, when Edgar Broughton bangs sing out demon out, that is when um, it will be time. I'll just for the. When we hear that, that's when we'll move on to the next one. It's not Mastermind, so if you start, I will let you finish. Um, <laughs> I just got to cut off halfway through. I mean, you can do. Matter what the sentence is. Some people do. I'm, I'm, I'm easy. Um, <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's. I really am avoiding dogma, and I love the. I mean, we'll, we'll, we'll get onto like themes and stuff when we're finished. Um, but I'm, I'm excited to do these five. So. Uh, I feel like this is like a weird Rorschach test. I'm, I'm, I feel very vulnerable right now. Do you? Wow. <laughs> please, please don't. <laughs> no, that's good. That's, that's my comfortable state, to feel permanently vulnerable. <laughs> well, put it this way. I'm vulnerable every time I ring up a complete stranger and hoping they want to take part in a podcast. That's true. That's I, go, true. I go through that panic attack every time. And this is like the four, you're, you're about the 400 podcast. So it, it, never, <laughs> it never wears off. Um, reassuring. As long so, as we're both uncomfortable, then everything's great. I think we'll be fine then, won't we? Right yeah. then, let's start with the first one. Clock ticking, uh, 2002, 28 Days Later. What is it about that film? You know, Where did you see it? Who did you watch it with? 
So not to date myself too much, but this definitely came from when I was at film school, uh, which quite a few of these might have that in common, to be honest. But I was, um, it was right in the cusp of you know, everything had to be done on film when mm-hmm. I was at film school, which was quite intimidating. I was very, very shy at that point, um, and it's very difficult to sort of commandeer that many people to do something. So digital, this was the first, I think, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I think this was the first digital feature film, wasn't it, that had a theatrical release? Um, Certainly one was, of them. Yeah, and it and it was not HD. Like it looks, and what's great about Twenty Eight Days Later, if you watch it now on Blu-ray with everything pushed, it actually it looks terrible on the technical level just because the cameras they used. Like I used to own this camera, and it's 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 just awful. But because it's it's the best proof for me of it doesn't matter as long as your storytelling, the way you're using that camera, the acting, you know, all of these elements make it into fantastic film. And whenever I put it on that first sort of five minutes, you are kind of cringing a bit because of the technology but it's it's living proof of it doesn't it doesn't matter and it always frustrates me when i have friends who are doing film and they're always like oh no i can't shoot my short film or my feature on this camera i need like the newest coolest best like thing I'm like no you don't like you really don't like i've seen like films like rubber which have been shot on a 5d um and they look beautiful you know um so I love 28 Days Later, partly for that, just I think it's an incredibly important sort of mission statement, really. Mm. Um, but also, it's just a fantastic film. Like, it's so... It, it, it's it, When we're talking about... Uh, how are you phrasing it? Sort of horror films that are just kind of... Genre films that are just going by the numbers. You can look at this film in that way, but it also you know has commentary running through it. But the going by the numbers is just so vehemently passionate and there's so much energy like like he plays with so many different genres in here and i think danny boyle like i'm trying to remember now this is probably my second favorite danny boyle film and for me it's him doing what he does best when he's just allowed to sort of completely cut loose um he's gonna do drama he's gonna do horror uh he's gonna do comedy um, and the action's just, I think partly because of that camera, the action's crazy because the camera was so light, he could do anything he wanted to with it. <laughs> so does that, can, I mean, as a technician, can you see that flexibility in what you can achieve in a shoot? Is that evident to you watching 28 Days Later? Oh, definitely. I think he was restrained. I mean, I think considering, again, like knowing this camera, like and how light it is, yeah. normally when you get a camera like that, you have to like put weights onto the bottom of it just so it feels some, you know, has some cinematic quality to it. Um, and I think he was restrained with the stuff he could have done in a, in a sort of similar way as when like, so for me, it's a complaint for when like Soderbergh does Unsane, um, which is one of the worst named films, I think of all time, regardless of how you feel about the film. Um, but like when you're shooting something on a phone, it's like, I want, I, I feel there's so much you can do with that. And I feel Soderbergh was restrained, but maybe to the film's detriment, but with 28 days later, he could put that camera, like he could do anything with that camera, you know, you can literally chuck it from person to person to be following someone when they're running or something crazy. Um, and he does sort of find ways to still shoot it traditionally, but then just every now and then he'll do something with it where it comes off of its axis and it gives you a, a really stylistic verb, um, which sure now I think maybe we'd get more used to, but, but because the storytelling and the acting and the pacing is so good and so vivid in that film. Um, I don't know. For me, it's a, it's a real, it's a true modern classic. So, I mean, just just for, to, for, for, for my benefit, I suppose, the, when, when you say that those kind of stylistic shifts, is there anything that stands out for you as an example of something that's really started here in terms of that flexibility with the lighter kit? That, you know, like you say, now watching it with today's eyes, it's kind of hard to see the novelty of what was being done. Oh, um... Yeah, I wanted to rewatch these before because it's been a while. I did a podcast just on this film that went on for about two hours, actually, where we kind of did that. We were pointing out different shots, um, and I thought they're going to escape me now. Okay, <laughs> well, look, it's, it's not it's not an exam, so don't worry. So if it don't come, to, <laughs> don't, I'm not going to. It's not a test. But so then the other thing that's impressive about this film is is not just the technology, but also the storytelling. That was a bold move in 2002 to have fast zombies. Um, which is weird to say that because the rules of zombies were created in a 1969 film. There is no real rules of zombies, but for some reason it stuck. Yeah, and I don't normally like fast zombies, to be clear. Like, it's, it's, 
uh, George Romero's Night of Living Dead was the film that kind of turned me onto horror films. Um, and I came to it quite late. I was in my late teens. Oh, look at that. Are you going to finish that film? I was in my late teens. That's when I saw it. And <laughs> it changed my life. Yeah. <laughs> right then. Yeah, I mean, it really did. The reason why I love genre is because of Night of Living Dead. So there might be some yeah, through line there as well. It's not a bad place to uh, be convinced that horror is the way forward. Yeah. So, um, moving to another point in 2002, and I'm happy to report to you this is the first time this has appeared in the in in the show. So I'm really excited. I think about it this. might be the first time anyone's talked about it in a long time. True, true, true. Now I've I've been in contact with with the director of this film. I want to get him on the podcast. I'd, l- I'd love to talk about making this film. It's a, it's a sort of sideshow. I do a Britflix. Um, so yes, it's it's a film I like very much, and that is 2002's My Little Lie, directed by Mark Evans. Um, so I'm guessing is this framed again within your um, your film school watching days, or is, has this got a different context to it? No, yeah, definitely, it definitely was, and it breaks my heart how little respect this movie gets. So it makes me very happy that you you like this movie. Um, and I was looking up the budgeting box office of it last night, and it was like budgeted for about two million, grossed in the UK under a million, hmm. which really hurts. Because um, I think it's it's such a good movie, um, and just a very important movie. It's like we're at a point there where Blair Witch had come out in '98 uh, in the US at least, and I I'd, I'd been in the US when Blair Witch was playing in about ten cinemas before yeah. it kind of like blew up. And it really, I, I'm not ashamed of it. Like, well, I'm a little bit ashamed of it, but it, I absolutely loved it because when you saw it in the US at that point, it was pre, it was pre the era of oh, we're always being lied to um, by social media and by marketing. So everyone went into it believing it was real, and I really, you know, you you went through watching Blair Witch, and I was very affected by it. You know, I, there was mm. someone in my cinema who had to be taken out in an ambulance, and. So there were all these sort of copycats afterwards, um, which you know, continued and is in some ways is still continuing. Um, and my little life for me was this is this for me was the perfect successor to it. It was I mean, again, it's an idea that wasn't necessarily that original. It's a bunch of people, you know, who win this well, enter this competition online to be part of a, a sort of Big Brother style sort of house, but in the middle of nowhere in Canada, I think it is. Um, and yeah things go bad and there's a snuff sort of website sort of feel to it um but i just think they they take the essence of what blow which did so well um but they push a traditional story into it the acting is great i think the pacing is great my i think actually for me found footage or whatever terminology you want to use for it uh films really succeed or fail with their final five minutes like that's when so many that I've seen are like, look, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt, but you have to kind of follow through at the end of this. And normally they don't. Um, it's a problem I have with like every paranormal activity film is even the ones I enjoy when it gets those for the last five minutes. I'm really not into the movies. <laughs> the last five minutes of this are, are, are torturous. Like they're just really like nasty. Um, no, it's and it's absolutely know. it's absolutely tragic the way that it all falls because the the idea of it's it's not a fun thing to do the idea of people start dying and then yeah you're right there's no because it's a, such a I guess a, a not as well watched film it'd be it'd be daft to spoil it for people who might hear mm-hmm. this and go I'd like to watch that now but I, I th- I'm not sure I mean found footage had already established yourself but I'm not sure the the kind of reality TV web show thing was such a such an established format for a film, and for for that, that's what made for me my little life stand out at the time, and why it still has legs because it feels like a forerunner still, um, in 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 horror. Yeah, and and like you say, yeah. the story it delivers on and the conclusion it reaches, you're kind of like fuck. Yeah, no, completely. And I don't and I don't think it matters, you know, as long as it's done well. And that's something with genre. I think it's you know, sure we can have. Whether the story is completely fresh or not, it's, it's just got to be done well. And it's, I do find it frustrating when a film, you know, like Searching comes out now and people lose their shit for it. Um, and you're like, yeah, but they've been doing this for decades. You know, <laughs> it's been since like Collinswood story. They've been doing films inside laptops and things like that. Um, but yeah, My Little Lie was, it was definitely one of the first. And it was just, it has an incredible mood. Like I'm really into mood in films and things that can just entrench you in that world's vibe. Um, and this is just like straight from the beginning, 
it's just a very lonely, very honest kind of relationship between the characters there. You've got a very early performance from Bradley Cooper. I was in about film, to say that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was going to say that's if this film has got a chance of having a future life, it's that we start we start sort of celebrating his canon and draw attention yeah. to it that way. <laughs> with a with a great Peaches song playing over a sex scene. <laughs> Fucking amazing. <laughs> Love it. That that turned me on to her. I really got into Peaches for a while after this. So. Um, no, I mean, it's it's just... And I went to the cinema to see this film three times when it was on. Blimey. Like, I absolutely like that. I just kept taking people because... Uh, partly because I was trying to make friends at film school, but also because, like, yeah, no one was going to see it. And I was just like, people need to see this film because I left shook the first time. Mm. And admittedly, I'm much number now than I was at that age. But there weren't many films, even at that age, that were leaving me feeling shook. Um, and I was addicted to that, I think. Yeah, but, the, but when a horror film can make you believe that it's possible, despite the fact you're watching a dramatic story, that's where it's got in your, you know, where it's living in your, in your head rent-free, isn't it? Yeah, no, I agree. Well, a complete change of tone then, jumping two years, to um, Simon Pegg, Edgar Wright's, um, Shaun of the Dead, which I, actually I think this is the first time this has appeared. If I'm honest, so uh, you, you've got. Oh really? You may well have thought you may well have thought you were treading over familiar ground, but no, you're you've got the first go at this. Why is Shaun of the Dead a great British horror film for you? I mean, I don't think we need the five minutes. It's Shaun of the Dead. I mean, <laughs> I have legitimate friends who still now think this is the greatest movie of all time, um, which I think they're objectively incorrect on, but. I, I love that it can still get that passionate response from people. And even people who are seeing it for the first time. It's such, like, I was a huge, huge fan of Spaced when that was on. I mean, Edgar Wright, um, and I mean, Simon Pegg's writing, obviously, was phenomenal. But Edgar Wright had such a, such obvious, just unfair, ridiculous talent and sort of vision behind the camera and, and cultivated an editing a sort of unity between editing and shooting. And I think it's so rare that you have a director who can take um, two parts of the three-part process of making a film and find a unique way to make them work together. And he and he's still doing it. You know, Baby Driver is is still cultivating that. Like I have friends who really, only really found him from Baby Driver, and I love Baby Driver, but it didn't feel as fresh because it's doing the same things he's been doing since Space and Short mm. of the Dead and Scott Pilgrim and everything. Um, Shaun of the Dead, yeah, I was at film school when this came out as well, and it actually came out, I think, in the UK the same week as the Zack Snyder uh, Dawn of the Dead remake. It wow, in the that's, same month. that's spooky. I didn't know that. I think it was the same week, and I think I presume that was on purpose from a marketing point of view. It's like the antidote to the sort of blockbuster serious, you know, sort mm. of inverted commas serious. Because um, I definitely went, I like to go to everything on sort of opening night, and I saw both of them in the same day. Um, I really love both of them, but obviously for very, very different reasons. Um, and Shaun of the Dead is just... I, I, it's so hard to do horror comedy. I think it's one of the most difficult um, genre, well, subgenres to do. It's, it's, I mean, obviously, comedy is very subjective, but I think the problem for me is, is that horror is all about pacing and controlling that pacing, which has to be a unity, again, between the writing, the shoot with the actors... And then you're editing. There's not like normally in a film you might shoot it and then you, I've got a friend who just finished shooting something, one of their first things, and they got to editing and they're like, oh, it's not at all what I thought it would be. And I was like, no, it's never going to be. Now you have that enjoyable, organic experience of making it the best of what it can be rather than trying to push it into something else. It's kind of like people, you know, don't try and push them into being what you want them to be, allow them to be the best versions of themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's so difficult to get that unity between them. Um, and Shaun of the Dead is just a film which it, it cultivates that balance incredibly well. And and if you're try and which I think is remarkable considering horror is trying to do that, but comedy is also trying to do that. And I'm always fascinated that comedy is all about pacing. And I think they're the most similar two genres in horror with how you have to approach them. Um, so when you're doing it together, they can really fight each other. And that's why, for me, there's maybe only five or six really great horror comedies out there. Like, and I mean truly great. Obviously, there are lots of enjoyable ones, but, mm. but like, really great. And this is one of those. Um, it's, do, do you not think that's to do with the fact that, ultimately, it's a brilliant rom-com with zombies thrown in? 
No, is that I do, and I think for me, I mean, it's um, textbook. I mean, it's textbook rom com, isn't it? Yeah, I think every genre, and not every genre, there's always exceptions, but for me, like, the genre films that tend to resonate the best with me, they operate from a place of just character first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which really, I feel, is like, a dra- every film should be a drama, and then you put the genre on top of that. Totally agree. Um, and Shaun of the Dead, yeah, the, the drama aspect is essentially the romantic aspect of it. Yeah. And then they're putting comedy and horror on top of that, uh, which I still think is a very difficult balance, but because, yeah, their biggest intention with this are the characters it works so fucking well and it does definitely help that they've come off the back of you know two or three years or whatever writing directing working together like the chemistry is obviously phenomenal on screen and you can't like i can never know what it's like to watch this if i didn't already know these people and already like them working together it's definitely you know a benefit um entering the film but i can't believe that people wouldn't still be won over with the chemistry because it's right there on screen in every scene yes yeah, yeah you're right there actually. i never thought of it that way in the sense of you were already so familiar with who they were as as funny people <laughs> and, and yeah. obviously in, in, you know steeped in genre for them to do a film with genre in it was just like a just like like them walking from one room to the other <laughs> yeah oh no i there we go, Edgar Brockman put an end to the Shaun of the Dead conversation. <laughs> right then, we're gonna jump we're gonna jump another year to two thousand five to to a film I've 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 had conversations about this not just in this podcast but sort of just generally with um with horror horror peers as you meet as you meet them around the sort of film world and stuff. And this is a film that not only is considered a great British horror film, it's considered to be one of the best horror films of the 21st century, um, which is pretty high regard. And I don't disagree with that. I think it's, I think it's immense, uh, an immense piece of uh, horror cinema. Um, and that is Neil Marshall's The Descent. Yeah, I mean, as it, as it should be. Like this film, I remember the first time I saw this, um, I was living in Brighton for a year. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so we're really following my life now after film school. Um, and it was at a point in my life where I was responsible enough to keep going to the gym and opposite the gym was a cinema. So I tend to go to the gym, then go and eat some food, which probably I shouldn't be eating, but you feel like you deserve because you went to the gym for half an hour and then would go and see a film. Um, and yeah, my girlfriend at the time, I think she was, well, she was doing something like just over the road from it. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go see this film, The Descent. She didn't like horror films. So I was like, I'll go see it by myself. Middle of the day, you know, it's a very weird experience when you see great horror films in the middle of the day and you come out and it's bright and sunny and everyone looks happy afterwards. You know, it was very weird. Um, and this film, absolutely. So I didn't have that high expectations for it at the time because to be completely honest, everyone lost their shit for Dog Soldiers and the posters were all like the best horror film since The Evil Dead. And I was a huge Evil Dead fan. Um, and I didn't love it. Um, I really liked the werewolf designs in it and I liked moments of the directing in it, but I didn't really like, um, I didn't really like the movie. I'm not a big fan of sort of movies based around army personnel in horror. I find it a little bit, the character isn't as interesting for me necessarily. Um, so I didn't go into this that amped and it completely just blew me away. Um, and again, I think it's because... My only criticism at the time was the first sort of half hour. I mean, the opening scene, again, I don't want to spoil anything for anyone who hasn't seen it by now. Um, but the opening scene is a stunner. And then you get maybe 20 minutes or so of more the drama side of it. And I don't think it's phenomenal at the drama side of it, but it's just good enough to do that thing we're talking about where you're getting invested with it just as a movie to do with these characters. Mm. Um, and it's a purely female cast. Everyone's great in this. Um, but particularly Shauna McDonald, I think is fantastic in this movie. Her like arc in this is really challenging and she, she does an incredible job of it. Um, and then what's I think so good about it is you're invested as a drama and then they turn it into this, you know, sort of cave spelunking thriller and it's terrifying. Like just the cave, the real life kind of cave aspects of it are really, I, I, I've, I've never in like if you just went to see a movie 
that's about the real life problems people can have when you know climbing mountains or going down caves or whatever they rarely get the reaction that this does for me and then they just add an extra layer on top of that when we get to the, the sort of true horror yeah when, when when the film decides to go claustrophobic before it goes to its sort of ultimate horror it literally takes your breath away as a like a cinematic experience that's a rare thing to happen yeah yeah the places that neil's choosing to put the camera in this and the way i mean again the, the actors are just committing to it he doesn't rely too much um was that the same year as the cave came out that american one um i think it was that was there's quite a lot of parody on the years where they just get two films that are similar and the reason why the cave completely fails is because it's yeah the the actors are treating it like they're in an action horror movie and the director is as well and there's a lot of sort of wides using cgi sort of to extend you know the environment and all this stuff neil is very up close personable he's using negative space constantly in the movie and then when he does again i don't want to spoil too much but when he does start to reveal the true horror that that's going on down there he really lets you soak it in like he's not cutting around things. He's letting you, and I think that's such a powerful tool that horror filmmakers don't use enough, which is let's not be ashamed of it. You don't, but you can also use other ways to let people like, you know, really peer into that darkness and have long cuts um, while they're trying to make but, out what. But do exactly you think? Do you think he gets the benefit of that? Because I think he gets the benefit of that because of that twenty minutes where we just getting to know these people. And there is no, not even a, a hint of a horror film. And then by the time we've reached that point, we're basically looking with their eyes. And so those lingering shots are really us going, I'm glad I'm not there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's why it's emotionally working. But like from a director point of view, he's still got to have the balls to go, okay, we're not going to be scared either while shooting it or in the editing room uh, of, of worrying that this is going to not work or look cheesy, you know? Like he's the control, the DP's control of lighting in it is is really great to the point where the first time you're seeing stuff, yeah, you you're with them. Like you say, you've been down those two sort of like steps from drama to sort of real life cave sort of horror to then mm. this other worldly thing, and you're allowed to just go and finish your thought. <laughs> you're allowed to just stare at this moment, and I think much in the same way of most of the great great horrors, that's what they let you do. They let you dwell in that moment as the viewer and participate. Yeah, and it, and it is. I mean, you know, I don't, I don't wish to to draw parallels to embarrass you, but you know, there's there's moments in Starfish where I think you're doing the same. Uh, I won't we say. Definitely, I mean, that was our intention. We didn't. We had a very low budget and a lot of mistakes were made. So I'm not going to pretend we did everything the way we wanted it to. But our intention was definitely drawing from this kind of yeah film with when we did. And I've, and I've not. Do you know? Because I'm not. I, I don't. I'm, I, this is why I do do this podcast. It's always great for me to learn experience. So to think of those shots and why they work and then to hear someone who is a director explaining why it was a kind of daring thing to do, um, to sort of believe in what you're doing. And then I could, yeah, like I say, I can, I can see the parallels between the way that you've set up all this in your Starfish film. And then there are moments where you've gone, I've saved this up for your look. This is, the, you know what I mean, and that's kind of what makes a good a good genre film a good genre film is that yeah. you, you feel as rewarded as probably the person who shot it when it, when these, these bits happen. I think I think it's the biggest problem with horror in particular is the creative team like the crew, the director, the editor hmm. being scared and not not in you know not for the horror reasons but just being scared of what they're showing not looking right not looking good enough. So there's so much editing around things in horror films. Um, and I think that can make an entertaining movie, but it's not going to make one that really sticks with you. Yeah, it's, well, yeah I suppose it's, like, it's that idea that you can kid people into the rhythm of a horror film as opposed to shoot a horror film and then bring it yeah. together. That's what you're saying. Is that what you're saying? Well, it's because you become, you're removed. When there's too many edits in a movie anyway you were removed because it becomes a movie and that's fine because some movies should just be you know a movie they're just there to entertain you horror films can be entertaining but to really stick with you it's like you're saying like you you have to win them over the characters and then you have to live with the characters and the characters aren't editing around they're peering and trying to look directly at things you know 
So if you're ashamed of that, whether it's through lighting or costume design or effects, um, and then in the editing are ashamed of that as well, and you're too scared to really allow these moments to breathe and for you to be one of these characters in the film with them, it's never going to last in the same way, in my opinion. Got you. No, that's uh, you've, you've kind of reached into my psyche there about why I enjoy some films and why I don't. And I feel like I understand that a bit more now, which is good. Um, it's a two-way process, this, Al. It's working, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're both going to be we're both going to be calm at the end of it. Uh, final choice for you is 2010 Monsters. The um, I guess I guess this is a, you know Gareth Edwards um, wrote and directed this, and obviously is it, it's a film that's notorious and fa- and famous for all the special effects he did coming from a special effects background and there was umpteen I mean certainly I remember being I remember in, in, in Britain um how much sort of interviews there were of Gareth and a laptop. <laughs> you know yeah. I've never you know no film no film released <laughs> before then seemed to be that obsessed with the technical things that made a film affordable and obviously it did well in the box office as well, which is I guess why we were drawing on that. But for you, what 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 was you what what made you choose this one as a great British horror film? Again, you've uh, that's three out three out your five, mate. You've gone for your, your first dibs on uh, on a film. So Monsters is another one. Oh really? Well, that makes me happy. Um, I could talk a lot longer about this, so I'm going to try and compress it in. <laughs> um, this is all right. So I've been at film school. I went to Brighton. Um, I was in the music industry for quite a while. All I'd ever wanted to do since I could talk was make movies, but right. it, I was just too scared to really after film school. Um, and yeah, my band was doing okay, so I went and did that for a while. And it wasn't until 2010 at Fright Fest um, when I saw Monsters. And it completely, it was one of those movies you watch where you're just like, oh, fuck, someone just made the movie I always wanted to make. And it's both very exciting and also really makes you feel shitty about yourself <laughs> because you <laughs> haven't got off your ass and done anything. Um, and then I was doing a little bit of press work at the time, and I, I sort of conned my way into a press junket to meet Gareth. He had done this inspiring chat at Fright Fest where he had kind of told people in the Q&A, look, you know, because he had made monsters, people who don't know, is him, a sound person, a couple of helpers, and then the two actors. That's basically it for this film. And he was using prosumer gear at the time, which was very like crazy heavy. Um, and, it, and it was made for just a few hundred thousand. And it was a very, very inspiring new dawn of the digital age to show mm. digital can be used so anyone can go and make movies basically now. Um, which for me was incredibly exciting. I was like, oh, I can make a feature or a short even with just five people. That's amazing. Um, yeah, and I went to his press junket and he was just the nicest person and he really like completely inspired me so i'm not like i hope i would have always found my way back to film because it's all i wanted to do but i'm not exaggerating when i say this is this movie is the reason that i'm making anything now um it completely uh gave me the courage and he gave me the courage to go and just buy i actually went and saved took all my money i'd saved up and bought the exact same equipment he used for monsters wow so i was like I was at the same lenses, like everything. I was like, I don't want any excuses uh, when I make something to be like, oh, it would have been good, but I didn't have this, you know? Because um, he had proven what he could do with that equipment. And it wasn't crazy expensive. Like, again, it was prosumer stuff. Um, and I went and made my first short because of this movie. Um, so like, the reason why I love the movie, I mean, it's hard to put your finger on. It's a very emotional film for me. Uh, some people might be angry because they won't see it as horror, and I understand that. Um, and you might definitely see some through lines between Starfish and this film. There's definitely one uh, nod to it. I was going to say yes. No, I definitely, I definitely do. <laughs> yeah, that, that's definitely because again, like at the very end of Starfish, there's like a thank you from the producers, and then there's a thank you from me, and there's only three people listed, and one of them is to Gareth Edwards, uh, n- not pretending that we're best buddies or anything, but just because he sent me on this course. Um, and he has occasionally, like like during the shoot of Starfish, he sent me a very supportive email that honestly got me through finishing shooting the movie because I was, That's I was amazing. struggling. Um, so yeah, whether he wants to be or not, he is. He'll always have a thank you at the end of my end credits because I just wouldn't be doing this other than with the hand. I find I find it I find it amazing though that, that not amazing in a bad in a good way. Like Fright Fest as a as a as a forum is forever a bloody. Inspira- it's like an inspirational pit. Like we go in there, and then people come out, and they're like, they're going to go and do this, they're going to go and do that, and that seems to be like a very much a kind of pl- you know feedback loop that happens 
when you when people make a movie yeah. and, and it gets to play at Fright Fest, there's like, well, I was sat there watching this film and I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, I don't think England has enough of that. Like, I just doing the festival tour in America and being sort of, uh, I hadn't encountered the festivals in America before. And Fantastic Fest is, is an incredible festival, which I absolutely adore. But loads of them. America has a lot of options for that, a lot of platforms, and I don't think England has enough, and Fright Fest is a fantastic one for it. We're a bit tiny. Um, We're a bit tiny, though, aren't we, really? It's true. Yeah, well, yeah. And there is, there is, <laughs> there is Grim Fest, and there is Celluloid Screams, and there is... Uh, yeah, yeah. ...which are kind of growing, and you've got Southend Horror on the Sea. So I think that is one of the reasons Fright Fest works so well, though, is because it's so impassioned because of... You know, there are, yeah, like you said, there are options, but it's definitely more limited because we are a small island. We <laughs> so are, indeed. But, uh, um, but going back yeah, to... Sorry, so to get back to Monsters, yeah, because I do want to sell people. If anyone hasn't seen it, I want to sell them on it. Um, it's it, it's incredibly... It kind of feels like a documentary almost. Like it's shot very personably. Um, they didn't even have a script. They had like a 12-page kind of treatment from my understanding. Um, and so there was a lot of doing the scene again in different environments. And then in the editing room, apparently it was an absolute nightmare to kind of... There's a great making of on the Blu-ray. Which is very candid, and the kind of thing you actually want. To see film no, I agree. That that's uh, the whole when 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 he sort of as a, in a, almost like a Wizard of Oz way, where he shows you some of the rooms they shot in, and then how they made it part of the film. Like I think yeah. there's the the bit that the trick he does with um, the the character watching the news on the TV, and he's just showing you it was a blank TV, and it's just a yeah. And I think is it is it the was it a tax office that became the boat. What was it a boat hire? What was it a boat hire office or something like that that they basically trick you into? I can't remember. It's just it just was yeah, yeah. the the idea that they 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 went this will be what we need and I'll, literally Gareth's probably the only person that could ever honestly say to himself I'll fix that in post and it and it no, not, completely. and it not be a cheat. <laughs> And I feel we're not cheating with your rules because we're talking a bit more about filmmaking than just monsters. <laughs> but, Indeed. But I think that's a very important um, thing that you can only do from that point, you know, that you can only do with if you're making a movie with just five people um, and you don't have an entire crew and an entire schedule. Like, they're so flexible. That's a beautiful, freeing way to make things. And every other project that I do, I do a lot of things that I don't even release, um, but every other project that I do, I, I'm still trying to cultivate my way of doing that. I feel very passionate. I have kind of two production companies and one I want to do bigger and bigger pictures with um, and one I want to do things that are really 100,000, 200,000 um, and under because I think it's incredibly freeing to make movies with just 10 people um, and you're kind of doing it like like it's a student project almost but with professional people on board who understand mm. the process. Um, it's incredibly freeing to be reactionary to the world around you rather than just you know tied to what's down in the script and what's down in the planning and oh even if it's not going well today well we still got to push through you know because this is what everyone's prepared for um and i think monsters is a perfect example of how that can make for me magic um i don't think it works all the time but he managed to create magic out of that um and i do also want to say I, i also stole from that for starfish with the the idea of having the opening scene being your final scene, basically, um, which I really love in that movie. But that's uh, I, I love a I love a good circular narrative, uh, yeah. especially when I don't know it's circular. Um, but the the uh, I mean, for me, the test of a of a, of a good genre film is uh, my wife, who isn't necessarily the world's greatest genre fan. She won't die in a ditch with me over it. But when we see films <laughs> like this that that sort of straddle a divide. And the emotional impact of the film, regardless of the sci-fi and the monsters and the threat of death and all that, but the whole kind of romance and journey of it, which is a very human, universal story that it's easy to get on board with in the end. You don't need to be a fright fest nut to appreciate how good monsters is. No, and again, yeah, again, you're playing it as as drama. It's mm. about these two people and their emotional journey, and everything that's in the genre world around them is just backing up their emotional journey. Um, both the sweet and the sort of scary moments in that. I love it. Indeed. Well, look, that, we've come to the end of your uh, five great British horror films. Um, I'm just going to run through the list now for the as a, as a recap. We've got 2002's 28 Days Later and My Little Eye, 2004's Shaun of the Dead, 2005's The Descent, and 2010 Monsters. Now, 
The interesting thing, the, the one obvious pattern here that hasn't happened before is you're all 21st century. Which no, is, no, I feel ashamed. <laughs> no, don't be. No, it's great. Um, I think that there's, you know, there's, there's, I've, I've had the conversations about the innocents and peeping Tom. So mm-hmm. I've not had the conversations about monsters. I've not had them about the descent, you know, my little eye. So I think hats off to you for that. I think it's good, a good selection of films. Um, I mean, to be clear, I do love a lot of the classics as well. They just don't emotionally necessarily mean as much to me, you know. These no, no, no. Just, you know. no, no, I totally agree. And that's the point is that we want to talk about you as much as the films. And, and I think if we, if we get more people to see Martin Eli, we'll have done our job, won't we? Absolutely. Well, look, let's just do a quick plug then. So Starfish is available where and how? Um, it is available on uh, yeah iTunes, Amazon, um, all over the place. If you go to starfishmixtape.com, then, yeah, you can find the full list and click most of it. Um, and one thing I do want to say that I've been trying to say on all the Q&A is I was saying it for when people go into the cinema, and I think it's the same as is true for when people are finding indie films online, hmm. is keep like even if you watch something even if someone goes and is kind enough after this to go and rent or to buy starfish or whatever and watch it and they hate it uh feel free to go online and voice that like respectively <laughs> like you know be be like it's it's totally appropriate to go online and say you don't like something in a constructive way um but please keep taking those chances like please keep going and just supporting indie film and then talking about it online because i don't think people realize just how much every single rating on like IMDb or on Rotten Tomatoes or on Letterboxd uh, in America, um, all of that really changes the entire landscape for indie filmmakers and then just the entire industry. Um, every single voice really does count with that. So, so again, whether you love or hate my film, please keep taking chances and talking about it online. No, that's really, that's, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't aware of this sort of, um, the, the, the absolute importance of that and, and the idea that because I hear that a lot now with with podcasts that I listen to where they they, they invite people who do or don't like it to to, to leave a review because um, I think I think conversations about stuff is is a useful place to be as opposed to a binary world of there's a there's a there's a room full of whatever everyone thinks is good and then there's a, a vanishing point of nothing that everything else falls into. Which isn't the right world, yeah. the world I want to live in. I mean, I kind of, I grew up with the likes of, um, you know, the fall. Marky e. Smith didn't write good music every time he put an album out, but it didn't stop him. And then, no, and then no, he, exactly. You know, and I think that's what film, films, films makers that can't just make a hit album. Filmmakers start with, I'm trying to think now, Spielberg, what was it? The Jewel, wasn't it? That was his first one, the TV movie. Yep. You know, if, the, if, if, he'd, if the, if the, the pylon crowd as what, as is now had got on that, we might never have got lots of things, um, you know. No, so. completely. The conversation is what keeps the film alive, particularly, I think, now more than ever. With the amount of indie films, the reality is you're almost always going to go straight to digital nowadays. So you're relying on two things. One is can you get promoted on those platforms so that people, the general public, who don't do the research, who don't listen to podcasts and don't go on IMDb and all this stuff, will just organically find you. And then the second tier is are people talking about you? And they're both equally important. And it's one of the reasons, yeah, if, like, it's like my little lie. It's like there's no conversation happening about that movie anymore. It's very sadly, as far as I know, anyway. Um, but I think if a conversation created about it, more people go check it out and would love it, and then it would keep talking about it. And that would allow a whole different lease of life for a movie to go on. Yeah, no, I uh, saw a recent, I mean, the obvious one for that is um, Stephen King's endorsement of Caliber, the Scottish independent film about the, the kid who shoots someone by accident. Yeah. Stephen King tells everybody it's a great film. Suddenly, it's got an audience it never would have got, ever. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and no, that's become the thing now. Is it? It's been like the creators talking about films and kind of wielding yeah. more power than the critics. And Scott Derrickson shone a light on a dark... I don't know if you've seen the film A Dark Song from 2016. Um, yeah, I have. I mean, that's a magic film. Again, sadly, again, thinking about your idea of the conversation, not one that the conversation was held on, but then Scott Derrickson shines a light on it and suddenly... It's got it's got a it's got some interest again, and that was it was great to see. Well, look, oh, well. sir, uh, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to wrap up the podcast, even though we could talk forever. I think, well, maybe not forever. <laughs> One of us needs to go to the toilet at some point. Um, <laughs> but uh, thanks very much for giving us your time on the podcast. Talk about Starfish and give us your five great British horror films. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh man, thank you. Honestly, it's been a really lovely conversation. 
The BritFlix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. another season of the Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find the Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. <laughs>